In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. First off, thank you so much for your patience. Last week, we had to skip the pod because uh, Nathan was out doing amazing stuff, preparing a whole new course for a whole new class of undergraduates. This is the most badass fucking shit I've ever heard in my life. Aww. Like literally like making a whole new thing that these students... That could literally be a student's new favorite class at, <laughs> at, at JMU. Like, I'm just, I think that's so cool and totally worth taking time to, like, really be able to focus on making a fucking new class. That's so cool. So, yeah. I mean, if, if any of my students are listening now, I feel like I, I feel like I have a lot to measure up to. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, that would be true, but it's going to be a shitty fucking class. So. <laughs> no, I hope it's good. I hope it's good. Yeah. Um, so, but thank you for like being patient while we were off. Um, obviously we're back this week with another great episode and we are super mm. excited about what we're talking about. Mm. So of course we're talking about Trump and Mar-a-Lago and the warrant and all that stuff. Wait, did um, something happen? Yeah, something happened. <laughs> and if you've been living under a rock then, and only listening to our show, then you'll finally <laughs> learn about that thing that happened. Um, for the second segment, we're going to be talking about Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program, which was announced this week. Um, and then finally, we're going to be talking about kind of the competing priorities of having a planet that survives and being able to provide enough stuff for us to get beyond capitalism towards something closer to like socialism or like, you know, sufficiency so super low stakes yeah yeah yeah. low stakes conversation <laughs> on the last one there <laughs> i am so excited especially i'm especially excited for us to talk about the student loan forgiveness but yeah, me too. speaking of things that i'm excited about but in reverse what are the covid numbers <laughs> yeah that's a good one uh so <laughs> worldwide we've hit 603 million cases uh, so we've broken 600 million cases, everybody. Yay. Um, with average daily new cases of 734,000, which is actually down from 802,000 the week before. So that's down about eight and a half percent. In terms of death, we've hit 6.49 million deaths with an average daily new deaths of 1,944, which is down from 2,039 the week before. So that's down about 4.7%. On top of that, Vaccinations are at 67.5% of the world's population with one dose, which is up 0.3% from the week before, which is actually like the biggest increase in vaccinations in a single week that we've seen in a very, very long time globally, Hmm. which is awesome. Interesting. Yeah. In the U.S., we've hit 95.6 million cases with average daily new cases of 71,000, which is down 11% from 80,000 the week before. In terms of death, we've hit 1.066 million uh, with average daily deaths of 289, down from 306 the week before, so down about 5.6%. And on vaccinations in the U.S., we've hit 78.9% with one dose, 
uh, with at least one dose and 67.4% fully vaccinated, both up 0.2% from the week before, which is the most those have been up in a while. So honestly, like pretty much every single metric is going in the right direction this week. Yeah. Man, is this going to be another mostly positive episode? Because that's <laughs> what it sounds see. I mean, like. let's not commit. Let's not commit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm... I'm yeah, sure that we can I'll have solve, at least one If outburst. we can solve global warming, like, we'll get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least one, I, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Man, it is, it is good to hear that things are going in that direction. I am so worried in returning to school because I know that there's no mask mm. mandate. I'm still planning on wearing a mask when I'm in class, but there's yeah. no mask mandate. And I'm really worried about just schools being back in session and that leading to another spike in cases but i guess we'll see gotcha i guess we'll yeah, see yeah that's really interesting that's a really interesting point um fingers crossed luckily like that vaccine that population is going to be one of the highest vaccination vaccinated populations you know because like isn't it is it required or anything for jmu um i know it was last year there was like a well, well i think there was i think that the policy was that you had to get vaccinated or you had to basically come in for weekly tests so it mm. was so inconvenient that it ended gotcha. up like i think like almost 90 percent of the student population was vaccinated so yeah, i feel like that's probably going to be the same bet this yeah that's this that's fall. a good point so, i guess yeah. i guess we'll see i guess we'll see yeah fingers crossed yeah speaking of seeing things did you see mm. that yeah. story about how the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago? I did. I did see it. And unfortunately, lots of people appear to have seen things they shouldn't have seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, goddamn, imagine this shit. Like, I just... I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this. I don't know if this is just Trump being a petty asshole and just being like, oh, will I last? Well, I'm taking I'm taking these documents with me. And they're like, oh, Mr. President, you, you legally cannot do that. I'm taking it with me. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if it's that. What do you mean I'm the president? I don't know if it's just like he thought he was packing up an extra like fucking um, pack of fried chicken or something. And he accidentally stole the documents. <laughs> Um, yeah, or yeah. if he's like trying to like, sell what? these are these are these are filing do- <laughs> filing boxes i thought it's fixed boxes of fried for classified fried chicken yeah <laughs> um, classified chicken oh my god how is that not how is that not a place in like the congressional cafe <laughs> um, or if it's something nefarious like he's wanting to sell shit to saudi arabia because i mean there there was that there was that thing that came out recently about how weird it was that Saudi Arabia had paid Jared Kushner a bunch of money. Um, yeah. I mean, I, again, I, I would say that at this point there's no evidence of that. So I would, I would not mm-hmm. be comfortable speculating, speculating that, yeah. but I, I just don't know at this point. I just, it's, yeah. it's sometimes difficult to, to try to diagnose the motives of Trump. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like when you interact with a, a demented person, which is always really sad, but it's yeah. also like, what is going on inside their head? <laughs> <laughs> um but but yeah, like I, I totally agree. Like there's no real evidence at this point that Trump is like a double agent. Yeah. 
at least no evidence that's not just circumstantial. Yeah. Um, but there's also good evidence that it wasn't an accident. Yeah. And and that's I think it's worth calling out because like Trump doesn't have to be, you know, 007 playing the other side of the, you know, playing the other side in order to have done something severely wrong here. Yeah. Um, in order to put our country and our national security and our national kind of secrets at risk and to have violated the law. So like all of that can be true literally if, if it's even the most docile version of Trump took these documents and was aware of them. Yeah. So I think, I think it's probably worth talking through a little bit about like how we like kind of got here because yeah. a lot of the arguments about like Trump's situation is like, oh, well, I declassified them or it was an accident or, you know, I thought this was my stuff or, or all that stuff. And those arguments fall apart pretty fast when you actually look at like what the hell was going yeah. on. Yeah. So honestly, it goes obviously all the way back to like literally January 2021. Yeah. The, the moment Trump leaves office, he is you know, no longer president, obviously. At this point, he immediately loses any privilege to access classified material. He is no longer able to unclassify material, which is really important, right? Like yeah. the president has the, has like plenary power to unclassify material pretty much at will for good reasons so that they can do yeah. things like negotiate or talk with foreign leaders and stuff like that without being caught in or, classification or in, problems. Or in Trump's case, just post a picture of, an Iran missile silo just so he can like post it on Twitter, which he actually, I mean, fucking, honestly, he, he actually declassified a picture yeah. of an Iranian, Iranian missile silo just so he could post it on Twitter, which honestly that might happened. be the key to <laughs> Trump's motivation in all of this is just yeah. that he just fucking loved being able to do shit that no one else could do. And so yeah. being like, Oh, look at all these, look yeah. at this letter that I got and look at all this classified material that I was able to look at and all that shit. Yeah. Um, but as soon as he leaves office office, like all of those privileges end. And so in May, 2021, a couple of months after he left office, the national archives who are the people responsible for taking all of the, you know, cataloging, tracking, and and retaining all of the documents associated with an administration, um, realizes that key documents are missing from their records, and they contact Trump's people in order to start locating those missing items. And they realize that Trump's people had taken, or, or Trump himself under his direction, unclear, had taken boxes down to Mar-a-Lago. Um, and so, you know, the... National Archives reached out to Trump's people, uh, his, specifically his point of contact on record-keeping matters, uh, because they realized things like correspondence with North Korea and, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> and, like, on the funnier end, like, the Hurricane Dorian, like, picture that Trump modified was all, like, missing. And all that stuff belongs to the, belongs to the people of the United States. Under the Presidential Records Act, we're entitled to have all that shit. A president is not. And he's not even entitled to get rid of it or any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so the National Archives continues to try to pull the teeth of working with Trump's people hmm. throughout the fall and all like most of the year of 2021. And they are making no progress and getting no traction whatsoever. Uh, the people like um, are just not turning over all of these all of these documents. Finally, in January 2022, 
the Trump organization, I guess it's not an organization, just his home, whatever, turns over 15 boxes to the National Archives. And so at this point, they're like, great, National Archives is like, sweet, we got our shit, awesome. Um, and then they start realizing that as they review the material in the boxes, it contains sensitive and classified material, including material that like is marked as special access programs, which is like not only classified, not only like top secret, but like only like need to know people are able to access this stuff. So at that point, the National Archives uh, asks the DOJ to investigate Trump's handling of White House records and whether he violated the Presidential Records Act and other uh, laws relevant to classified material. So that was in February 2022. Um, so by April and May, the FBI start interviewing aides and staff at Mar-a-Lago about the handling of classified material. And in April 2022, remember, this is like a year and a half. April 2022 is a year after the National Archives realized that things were missing, a year and a half after Trump like took all these documents. Um, so in April 2022, um, the FBI asks the National Archives to to provide to them all of the boxes of documents that Trump returned to them for their for them to review. And by the end of April, the DOJ sends a letter to Trump's lawyers about the 15 boxes, notifying them that 100 classified documents totaled, totaling more than 700 pages were found in the boxes, right? These are the ones that were actually returned after being illegally removed. Um, and... And then in May, the DOJ subpoenas Trump to return additional documents that they've identified that are missing from the boxes that were returned. So he, he actually did take these boxes, go th- like presumably go through and take out certain documents and then return incomplete yeah. boxes of documents to the National Archives. Yeah, there was, and, a, there was a total of 11 sets that he still hadn't, handed over and each of them had various different types of classifications of mm-hmm. in, in in terms of um in terms of how secretive they were so one of the sets was listed as uh, various classified ts slash um sci documents which are is a reference to top secret and sensitive compartmented information all right mm-hmm. so those are that's like one of the highest, the most highest levels of classification. Um, there were four sets that were labeled as top secret. There were three sets that were labeled as secret and three sets that were labeled as um, confidential, which is the lowest level of classification. But some mm-hmm. of these were at the highest levels of classification. That's the type of thing that is reserved for shit like nuclear weapons. Yeah, exactly. Now we don't know we don't know that. We don't know if these specific ones were regarding mm-hmm. nuclear weapons. But just to give you a sense of how classified these are and how sensitive they are, yeah. that's the same level of nuclear weapons. So if it's not nuclear weapons, it's something about as bad as that. Exactly. <laughs> Reaching that kind of level with that kind of implication for U.S. national security. Yeah. And they were literally just being kept in a room in Mar-a-Lago. And at one point, yeah. at one point, thank God no you, one there can read. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like they, so at one point the DOJ, um, asked them before, like be, before taking back these documents, they asked them to just secure them more 
like more thoroughly, right? So that people couldn't access them before they were able to take a look at them and get them back or whatever. And so they put like a fucking tiny little padlock on the door, <laughs> like literally something that like, you know, someone with a little bit of momentum could just knock down. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and when they subpoenaed surveillance video from outside the room where the documents were kept, that they were aware of people were just coming and going like, yeah. like anybody had access to this room, like literally like it is possible, like this is speculation, but it is possible that like these documents have been seen by counterintelligence people. Like, yeah, Think of how easy it would be to get a membership at Mar-a-Lago or if you want to go the cheaper route, get a job at Mar-a-Lago and be able to go and photograph or review like these documents if you knew that they were there. It's like incredibly, incredibly irresponsible with these documents at this level of sensitivity. And so as a result, the FBI want like in in august on august 8th like fully a year and a half after the national archives realized documents were missing um got their search warrant in in order to be able to search mar-a-lago um and retrieved like hundreds of pages of illegally retained material including these highly sensitive documents that that nathan is talking about yeah and like and the backlash has been absurd (laughs) yeah well i mean a lot of the immediate backlash has been from republicans that have clearly not actually read the the um the search warrant that was uh that was put out that was unsealed um and also some of the claims by trump some of the defenses by trump just really do not pass the sniff test like he's Mm -hmm. he's claims like oh they didn't they they did this because they were trying to be dramatic i would have just i would have just uh you know handed them over but the thing is he didn't he didn't exactly all right he handed over some of them but he didn't hand over all of them so Mm -hmm. if he actually had no problem with handing over all of the documents why didn't he do that when they asked him to why didn't he do that when he handed over everything. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, the fact that he took them in the first place yeah. is is scary. The fact it's that illegal. he refused <laughs> it's illegal. The fact that he refused to hand over all of them is just I yeah. mean it's it culpable. Smells you know, nefarious. Like, yeah, exactly. Right? Um exactly. So and another thing that I keep seeing from a lot of right wing media is look at this. This is what happens in banana republics. Yeah. Yep. I just want to point something out. Let's let's put this let's put this baby to rest right now. All right? You know what happens in banana republics? What happens is elites commit crimes and they do not get charged with those crimes. They get away with mm-hmm. those crimes because they are rich and they are well connected and no one cares what they do. All right? So, it would be much more like a banana republic. For a former president to (laughs) blatantly break the law, violate the Espionage Act, and then just get away with it. And then just be allowed to do it. All right? Yeah. It's 100% opposite of what happens in Banana Republics. Like, like high-level government interaction doing everything they could to just, in good faith, have the Trump organization and Trump team turn over the documents that they illegally took. Only after 
more than a year and a half of asking politely and then asking yeah. more sternly and sending subpoenas and all of this stuff, did they finally like yeah. do a search? And even at that, you know, like this went all the way up to the highest levels of government to, to survive scrutiny being approved by Merrick Garland himself. A federal judge approved it. Like warrants are weirdly easy to get for normal people. But in this case, like it was it like it was like the most thorough warrant ever yeah. provided, you know? See, like, see, the argument that I keep seeing, which just makes me laugh, is if they could do this to the former president, they could oh do it God. to anyone. That's the point of living in a republic, though. Nobody is above the law. <laughs> yeah. Nobody is above yeah. the law. They went through <laughs> the legal process of obtaining a search warrant... Yeah. They which which is constitutionally mandated. They got the search warrant. They executed the search warrant. So yes, yeah. they can do that for anybody if they go through the proper legal channels. That's the fucking point of living in a republic. Yeah. <laughs> also, like the ironic thing about that is that it's the bar is so much higher yeah. for a president. Which is bullshit in some ways. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for a former president, I should say. Yeah, because which you is think like, because you think you would think that they should be held to higher standards. Yeah, but of course no, no, they're yeah, not exactly. But it, it's the opposite, and and on top of that, what's funny is and what's ironic about that point of view is like these are the same people that are like, yeah, yeah, yeah but no knock search warrants are totally chill for black people. <laughs> you know, like like just yeah. just rubber stamping tons and tons of warrants as long as you're in a low income neighborhood. Oh, we're chill about that, no problem at all. You know, like they yeah. don't give a shit about like about whether warrants are effectively controlled. All they care about is like, you know, trying to make an argument that Trump is above the law. I just I never understood how you can reconcile support law enforcement no matter what with the FBI is an arm of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Like, how do you how do you how do you put those two things together? How do you how do you square away law and order with, you know, like the president can do whatever the fuck he wants by a Trump appointee? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes like, yeah it's it's that's the thing the arguments are absurd and lucky for us they are absurd on their face they just don't yeah. pass any type of scrutiny whatsoever yeah like he claims that obama did this too which the uh you know the the national archives released a statement basically saying no the fuck he didn't what are you talking about yeah, yeah. um and also Literally everything that he is accusing the Biden administration of doing is all shit that he did. Like hmm. Trump famously pressured his Justice Department to go after his political opponents. He famously yeah. fired James Comey for not signing a loyalty pre- pledge. He famously mm-hmm. fired Jeff Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia investigation. All right. Yeah. This is a guy that famously (laughs) uses the FBI and the Justice Department for his own political gain. And here he is. I I, I mean, it it could be that he seriously does believe that Biden is pulling the strings behind the scenes because he can't comprehend the idea. He couldn't fathom the idea that a person could just have principles, that a person could just believe (laughs) in actually enforcing the law. So much projection. Yeah. 
Yeah, what's funny is like it's not just like, oh, well, Trump's corrupt and he's calling Biden corrupt, who's corrupt too, but they're both corrupt, so it doesn't matter. No, no, no. Biden is staying he's keeping his hands fully clean of this yes. mess. He is like which totally he at arm's length, which he absolutely should. He's at totally at arm's length and yeah, he, there's no there's not a stain of him whatsoever on this yeah. activity. And so Trump is yeah, accusing him like and his administration who are clearly not doing the kind of political pressuring that he's talking about of doing the things that you know, the same things that Trump was actually obviously doing with his Justice Department. In some ways, and, publicly. And he was publicly yeah. calling for Obama and for for Biden to be to be investigated and to be locked up for the biggest crime in history, which he mm-hmm. couldn't provide any evidence for. He claimed that they were illegally spying on him, which they weren't. Mm-hmm. At one point, they were there was there was a there was a warrant that had allowed them to tap his phones while they were investigating his Russia connections, but it was it was put through the the proper legal channels, and at no point mm-hmm. was Obama publicly calling for the investigation, and there's no evidence to suggest that he was in private. Yeah, yep. And the the most telling part of this, the funniest part of this, it, did you see did you see Eric Trump's statement about this? No, I didn't. Because one of the questions that, that they've been asking is basically, well, did Biden know that this was going to happen? Now, as it stands, mm-hmm. we have no evidence that they did, according to all spokespeople and according to, according to their own accounts. Uh, Biden had no idea. I see no reason why he would have to know about it. Mm-hmm. Like, sure. Yeah. I, I see. No <laughs> he's not benefit. the head of the Justice Department. Well, he's not. Yeah, he's not the head of the Justice Department. I don't see any reason why he should know about this. But even if he, I mean, even if he did, even if he was like sent a message like, hey, we're about to do this, doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong for this to happen. But but regardless, so Eric Trump, he's on Fox News and he said, quote, I know the White House as well as anyone. I spent a lot of time there. I know the system. This did not happen without Joe Biden's explicit approval. (laughs) That is... (laughs) <laughs> so much projection. That's amazing. Think about what he just admitted to there. Yeah. <laughs> like he just admitted to like, he's like, look, I worked in the white house. I worked in literally the most corrupt white house in history. You think I don't know what goes on in a corrupt white house. I was right there. <laughs> like you just fucking admitted that your father did this, that yeah. your father was specifically trying to investigate his opponents was encouraging investigations of his opponents. You just admitted that mm-hmm. you fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's, that's, that's fucking hilarious. What an idiot. <laughs> so I do want to go through like a couple like specific things that like Trump and his people are claiming. I think one, we kind of dispensed with altogether already, which is like, Oh no, he accidentally took the boxes and didn't even know. And then forgot about them despite all the subpoenas for like a year, you know? And like, that's clearly false because he should, he would have given them back when you make a mistake, you just undo it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, so like, that's like, like clearly false on his face. Another claim he's made is that, which kind of goes against that first claim is that, uh, he had a pro- he had a process for declassifying all these documents. You know, I just I just declassified them as I was going out out of you know as I was still president, and then and then so now they're not classified. So two problems with that: one, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Like there actually yeah. has to be a process for declassifying yeah. documents, even though you can you can just do it as president. But like there has to be a process for that, and and like no one 
include his legal team is not even claiming Trump's lawyers are not claiming to argue that he actually did this. He's just saying that to the public. So like, it's clearly not a, a true, like good faith claim that he actually declassified all these documents. But the second important thing on that is that the espionage act, which, um, he's being investigated apparently according to this, you know, according to the warrant, which was unsealed, he's being investigated for violating doesn't require that, the documents be classified and then improperly handled for you to violate the act. Yeah. Right. The records, the the documents just have to be, um, just have to be like able to harm national security and that the person who has mishandled them has the intent or just the knowledge that, um, they may fall into the wrong hands and harm us interests. That's all the espionage act requires. So he could literally, have declassified all these documents willy nilly. And if you keep them in a fucking storage room with no lock, that's enough. So like that is a totally like weak argument pretty much on its face. And finally, the th- the thing that I think is the most hilarious argument is that is hit the bit about, well, the FBI just wanted to make this a big show and discredit me and all that stuff. And it's like, dude, the FBI quietly came into your home, served you a search warrant, and retrieved documents, and then yeah. went back. Yeah. You're the one who drew everyone's attention to the fact that they were doing this <laughs> by telling everybody that they were there. <laughs> like, the FBI isn't in the habit of publicizing all of their activities or their, mm-hmm. all of the warrants that they serve. That's what you did. <laughs> so it's, like, totally disingenuous that, he act- that he's, like, claiming that they are trying to discredit him by serving this warrant because they were perfectly happy to do it quietly and get no public attention. Yeah. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. You had a chance to turn over everything. You had probably more time than you should have been given to turn over everything Mm -hmm. and you didn't. So if this was an accident or if it was incompetence or if it was just an honest mistake, then why wouldn't you have given everything back when they asked for it and when you already gave some of it back? Yeah. That just... Yeah, exactly. That makes no sense. One counter-argument, Nathan. This is a really good one, so hold on to your pants. Hmm. But her emails... (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment... Good actually. So Nathan, what the heck is a good actually? Well, a good actually is something that we do because oftentimes the world feels like it kind of sucks, you know? Mm, Yeah. But then you start looking around Mm -hmm. and you see like a butterfly, you know, Uh, and then you see like a a child lean over Mm -hmm. and start petting a dog on the nose or something. Mm, And then you see... You know, an elderly man say something really wholesome to a, a couple mm. that's passing them by about, you sure. know, having a beautiful family or whatever. And you think, man, you know what? Good actually is all around us. This might speak truly to the purpose of good actually. Every one of those examples in my head, you are about to say something very dark afterwards. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like each one was actually an example of something terrible. That was my head. So you see how important good actually is <laughs> yeah, to properly yeah. orient us to the fact that there is good out there. No, Jess and I actually had that, that, that third one that literally happened to us recently. We were just like That's walking nice. down the street and this, this elderly man was just sitting 
outside outside a restaurant and he was just like wow you have such a beautiful family you know i hope that you have that a wonderful so day and we're just nice. like oh thank you that's so nice of you that's so nice right wow so is that good is that our good actually then? that isn't our good actually though oh, oh, oh. Although, so nathan what is our good actually our good actually is that the inflation reduction act passed Ooh, yeah baby the biggest piece of climate change like legislation in the history of the United States passed. It passed. It, it, it passed. It was signed into law, which also means an increase in subsidies for healthcare. It means renegotiating of pharmaceutical prices for Medicare. It means um, investments into moving over to a green economy. It means closing some loopholes that allowed rich people to pay less in taxes. Mm -hmm. It means a 15% minimum corporate tax rate. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, so many things on our priority so list. So many good things on our priority list. Like, holy shit. I mean, look, I, 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 I never want to sugarcoat things. There's definitely more that we wanted in there, and there's more that we mm -hmm. need to fight for. All right. There absolutely is more that we need to fight for. But right now, we can just just smile and celebrate the fact that something actually got done. This yeah. government that a lot of us spent a lot of time advocating for, we, we, we encouraged people to vote, but not just vote. We encouraged people to call representatives. We encouraged people to be activists. We encouraged people to hold this 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 president and the Senate and this House of Representatives accountable to what we voted them in in order to accomplish. We did that as activists. You all did that as activists. You all made that happen as voters. And now we're all reaping the benefits of it. So tomorrow, keep fighting. But today, smile big. <laughs> and that's good, actually. So, in another piece of what looks like pretty fucking cool news, yeah, is Biden's recently announced student loan forgiveness program. Yeah. Which has been a long time coming. Yeah. Like like his campaign promise all the way back in 2020 was to uh deliver $10,000 worth of student debt cancellation as yeah. part of his as part of his uh administration and it looks like He's doing mostly that. Yeah. And we've also done like, what, how many, like three, four segments about this? Yeah. Three or four at segments. At this point, at least, debt. you know, yeah. we, it's in really our... fucking important. And yeah. a nuanced and kind of interesting issue to think about and tackle. Like not the most obvious yeah. political or economic issue. Well, if you're not a student yeah. <laughs> or a former student, you know, yeah, exactly. if you don't have any debt, then maybe not. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, this was one of those things that when Michael and I did an episode specifically focusing on what Biden could do even without legislative approval to kind of justify the fact that we do still often criticize him, this was mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that we talked about. Yeah. And he's actually, it looked, he's actually doing it. He's actually yeah. doing it. And totally. 
it is means tested, but it's not means tested in the ways that a lot of the other ones have been means tested. Mm -hmm. He signed a few executive orders that has canceled some student debt, but it's all been mm -hmm. like super specific. It's been like if you attended the University of Florida between yeah. the year of 2007 and 2009 and you have a mole on your left butt cheek, <laughs> you qualify for student loan forgiveness. <laughs> He's like, man, I remember this girl that I saw <laughs> back in... The University of Florida with a mole on her left butt cheek, and boy, she deserves some forgiveness. <laughs> After what I saw her do. Sorry, that was Bush, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that's that's not that's not a that's not. Sorry, Biden. I'm still in the early 2000s. <laughs> no, it's cool. It's cool. So are uh, as are we all. So anyway, yeah. um, so no, this one it is means tested, but it's not nearly as means tested. So yeah. basically, what this does is it forgives $10,000 of student debt for anybody who has either an individual income of less than 125,000 or for married couples uh 250,000. So it's it's $10,000 of student debt cancellation plus another $10,000 of student debt cancellation for individuals with Pell grants. All right, mm -hmm. because oftentimes uh Students that have Pell Grants tend to have a harder time paying back their student loans, usually because in order to qualify for Pell Grants, most of the time that means that you have a lower income. And yeah. if you come from a family that had a lower income, odds are you're going to struggle to pay back those student loans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It also extends the federal pause on student loan repayment um, to the end of the year, so December 31st. Um, and so, like, the timing is such that, you know, while everybody's kind of getting the benefits of this program kind of worked out, for people that don't have their income with the Department of Education at this point, they'll be able to go through, like, an application process and stuff so that by the time student payments uh, restart, people will have already received this, uh, the student loan forgiveness for that $10,000. Yeah. And... One of the things that this also does kind of address, so one of the counter arguments that we actually, that we addressed in an earlier segment when we talked about student loan forgiveness was the idea that most of the people that have student loans are higher income people. Now, mm -hmm. we address that and we address that, while that's technically true in terms of the overall amount of student debt, the people that struggle to pay for it the most are the people that are lower income. Now, yeah. I would still, I still maintain that I think that on principle, student debt shouldn't exist no matter how much money mm -hmm. you have. Like sure. on principle, I believe that. But, yeah. but this kind of throws that away because if you're in the top 5% of incomes, you get no benefit from this. You still mm -hmm. got your student loans just, yeah. just like the rest of us do. Yeah, which is an interesting way to kind of try to walk that, you know, walk the dirty word of like a regressive program. Because like... Yeah. Like we talk about how regressive things are bad, like regressive taxes are bad. And, and yeah. that's what like sales tax is and stuff like that. And that is bad when it comes to like a benefit. Like I think regressive programs are maybe less bad, mostly because the, the, the negative of the regressive part of it is outweighed by the benefit of not having a means tested part of it. That's what yeah. the benefit of universality. But if yeah, you're going absolutely. to have to respond to the fact that 
you know, the top 5% of earners maybe don't need that much help right now, especially under his justification, which is essentially that in the wake of COVID-19 and following that, like people need some help. We're still like going through some economically challenging times. Um, yeah. Like with all of that, you know, I could see the argument of having yeah. that threshold, but the, I do appreciate how high the threshold is though. Like it yeah. includes 43 million people who will yeah. benefit under uh, even under that that cap and 20 million of those borrowers will have their the remaining balance the full balance of their student loans fully erased and yeah. then it will decrease monthly payments by an average of uh, $250 for borrowers that still have outstanding student loans at that point yeah so as as it stands there's a 10% of your income uh, threshold for how much you need to pay per month mm -hmm. uh, when you're paying back student loans that has now been reduced to five percent yeah and that's and specifically that's like discretionary income yeah. um which and it, at the same time it also uh raises uh the amount of income that's considered non-discretionary so it actually yeah. reduces the amount of your income that sub that's measure that measures that five and ten percent so it at this point it'll make sure that no borrower earning um under 225 percent of the federal poverty level um uh which is essentially the equivalent of like a 15 dollar an hour wage for a single borrower will ever have to make a monthly payment yeah so, so let's talk about some of the counter arguments that I've been he hearing and kind of shoot them down First, this first counter argument. And maybe this is not going to catch on as a major counter argument mm -hmm. because yeah. I mean, cause it's just, it's wrong on the facts. Um, but well, that's never stopped an art, a bad argument. Well, <laughs> literally like two, two seconds after I learned about this and I went on Facebook and one of my conservative friends posted this, mm -hmm. um, so maybe this, maybe that's not the best gauge of where, you know, <laughs> where, where the conservative response is going to be. But I just want to go ahead and address this. One of the concerns that was expressed was, is student loan forgiveness going to be classified as taxable income? Mm -hmm. All right. So the answer is for federal income taxes, absolutely not. So normally it would be. But there was actually a provision in the American Rescue Plan that said that any student loan forgiveness up through 2025 could not be counted as taxable income for federal income tax. Now, mm -hmm. one thing, one caveat to that, and one thing that I do think is important and important information for you all to know, it is actually possible that there are some states that will... Well, so as it stands, there are some states that do not have that same statute. Now, I don't know if there's going to be provisions within the specific plan that's going to try to block states from being able to do that. I don't, I don't know what the, the legal precedence for that or the, the legal ability for the federal government to do that would be. But it is possible that in some states that do not have that same statute, that there might be, um, there might be a little bit of an increase in the amount you'll have to pay uh on your taxes specifically for your state income tax mm -hmm. and Which that could that'll, be... that'll just depend on what state you live in yeah and that could be a challenge right because yeah the cost of your student loans is spread out over time yeah 
But when you have a loan forgiven, it's yeah. considered a windfall in the year that it's provided. Yeah. So you'll have that tax impact in one yeah. year versus the impact of student loans over a longer period of time. But yeah. with the average person getting like 10,000 bucks back and the average like person that will have a student loan outstanding getting 250 bucks less payment per month, that yeah. should be able to cover like that kind of tax burden pretty easily. Yeah. So what I would recommend is if you are somebody who was benefiting from this, I would say go ahead and see what your state statute is on the, mm -hmm. on this. Um, and make sure that you prepare accordingly because it's possible yeah. that you might be responsible for like a few, a few loan payments worth of, um, worth of taxes, mm -hmm. just, just something to be prepared for. Again, I don't do not know. take accounting advice from a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> don't. Yeah. 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving you advice. I'm just saying you should, you should look into it. All right. Yeah. Um, so that's one counter argument, which the, the one on the federal income tax is just straight up wrong. The state, mm -hmm. worth looking into. But again, you might have to pay like, you know, five student loan payments worth of taxes on it versus having $10,000, $20,000 forgiven. At the end of the mm -hmm. day, you're benefiting more from that. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Um, on top of that, another another one that we've seen quite often is what effect will this have on inflation? Mm -hmm. So Which that argument, question. Well, it's a good question, but the argument is because there's going to be more money in the pockets of people who have student loan debt, that means they're going to be spending more money in the economy, which could potentially mm -hmm. drive up prices. But yeah. here's the thing. First off, since when have we ever wanted to discourage people from spending more money in the economy? <laughs> Second off, if fighting against inflation or maintaining the current economic system relies on putting so much financial burden on a group of people that they have to cut down on their costs, they have to cut down on the amount they spend within the economy... That's a bad system. Find another fucking way. Hmm. Yeah. I think those are really good, like pretty like principled arguments about like, you know, how we set up the economy. I think there's also good reason to believe that it won't have a bad, a a, you know, a deteriorating impact on inflation, at least not a significant one. So mm -hmm. like, obviously inflation is a hot button issue. People are really worried about it. Makes sense. Like people are hurting. Yeah. Things are expensive. Like that sucks. Yeah. Um, to Nathan's point, like people will, the people that are most in need will benefit the most from this. So like, I think like something like 80 or 90% of the, the value paid out by this will go to people earning like less than $75,000 a year, which is like, that will help inflation. Like that'll help those people weather inflation is I guess what I should say. It'll help those people weather and it'll, you know, help people that need more money in order to pay for the goods that cost more money to weather inflation. The other thing is like, this was a point made by Paul Krugman, a, a New York times economist. Um, he, he said, um, first the U S is a very big economy. Any impact of this forgiveness on spending will be small relative to GDP. And what yeah. that point is saying is essentially, yeah, like we're giving out, you know, $300 billion or so to 43 million people. But there are 
320 million people in the United States and our economy is $20 trillion. And so like, it's just a pretty small drop in the bucket. And again, targeted at people that could benefit the most in order in their ability to weather inflation. The last piece is that is, is an uh, analogous piece to, well, actually no, two, two, two other economic arguments about the relationship to inflation. One is a point made by uh, Susan Donarski, an economist and professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And she said, um, quote, you have to tell a pretty bizarre story about expectations in order for loan forgiveness to boost inflation. No one has been making student loan payments for two years. Right, yes. because of because of forbearance, forgiveness will not increase cash flow to borrow, borrowers right now. That increase is available er, in cash. Happened two years ago when payments were suspended. So the point there is, it's not going to increase like cash flow right now. In fact, and this is a point that the Biden administration made as well. In fact, when forbearance ends, but student loans are forgiven at the same time, that will have a pretty steady effect. So we shouldn't yeah. actually see any short-term impact on inflation. It'll essentially be like ongoing loan forbearance is essentially yeah. what this will look like economically. So basically, for the last two years, we've kind of had a little bit of a experiment of what it might look like. And the effects have just not been the nightmare scenario that a lot yeah. of these so-called experts or, you know, right-wing commentators are claiming mm-hmm. is going to happen. Yeah. The last point I wanted to make is, is the point that's analogous to the way we talked about the, uh, the like build back better plan and the IRA in their relationship to, inflation. And the point we made back then was that, yes, these are huge programs, you know, like the build back better plan was like three and a half billion trillion, excuse me, three and a half trillion at one point. But again, those are spread out over a number of years. And so it's not like we're inflating the economy the way we did necessarily during, um, COVID where we had to just inject a trillion and then two, and then ultimately, I think, like $3 trillion into the economy to keep people afloat, which, by the way, worked. Um, hmm. But like, it's not like we're doing that. What we're doing in, those, in the cases of Build Back Better and IRA, we're spreading out those payments over time. So that is exactly the scenario from a consumer uh, economics perspective that is occurring with student loan repayments. So while the federal government will have an outflow immediately, of the full cost of the repayments of like $300 billion or so because of how people pay back their loans incrementally over time, month by month, the impact on the economy will mean that that $300 billion is spread out as if it were replacing their loan payments, $200, $250, $400 each month at a time. So it will be the impact of this on our economy and on inflation will similarly be spread out over time. Yeah. So like if you have a $10,000 loan and you pay 200 bucks a month and you have your, and you know, you're going to pay it off over the next four years. If someone pays off your loan today, $10,000, it's not like you get $10,000. You get 200 bucks a month for four years. Yeah. Yeah. And also let's not forget about something else. And this is, this is one of the things that I think is really telling about the argument about inflation, which is the fact Mm -hmm. that Part of the argument is also more younger people are going to try to own houses because they'll be able to own houses 
because mm-hmm. in some cases, student loans make it so that you can't get a mortgage. And some, yeah. and for some people also just the monthly cost makes a mortgage just unthinkable. Yeah, you know, it means that totally. you can't save up for a down payment or afford the monthly mortgage. All right. So again, I go back to the whole principled argument of if protecting yourself from inflation means that you have to put undue financial burden on other people and only preserve house buying towards people that can afford to pay off their student loans because either they came from a family that is better off, which means they don't have any student loans, or because they got a job that was so high paying that they could just Mm -hmm. either pay it off in one fell swoop or it really isn't much of a financial burden to them, then that is an extremely elitist way of thinking. That's an extremely elitist approach to it. And again, I would say, find another fucking way to deal with it. Yeah, totally. And people might point to like, well, like, aren't house prices going up a lot? Like, isn't that a housing problem? And wouldn't this just exacerbate it? But the problem with that is that Similar to inflation, the housing bubble currently is not as much a demand side problem as a supply side problem. There's like not enough houses. And like, yes, one way to address that is to make it more expensive to buy houses. But to Nathan's point, that is disadvantaging a whole generation of people. And, and, And like, and the thing is like buying a house is one of the main ways that people build wealth. And like, I want to double down on the benefit of this kind of thing for people building wealth because wealth is really important. It's the kind of thing that's going to enable us not to rely only on social security, which may or may not be there when we all try to retire. It's the kind of thing that's going to enable us to weather population like uh, size shifts over time, you know, like, and not be in a scenario where Like there are so many more baby boomers than working people that were in this upside down triangle where a smaller group of people is having to support, um, you know, the health care for people that shouldn't be working anymore, but, you know, don't have enough money to retire on, which is a problem that's just going to get worse unless we take steps to address it. And like the thing about student loan forgiveness is that, you know, I think I made this point last time we were, we, we talked about this, but I think it's really important is that literally even just taking that chunk of money that you save every month if you're able to and like not put it towards you don't even have to put it back into the economy right like yeah don't don't affect inflation whatsoever literally you could put it in like towards like a low risk like 401k ira low risk uh like financial security and you could literally take that 250 bucks per month and you put it towards retirement And given the power of compounding and given the growth in our economy, you could easily see that turn into $700,000 or more by the time you retire. So you could literally take someone who like is struggling to get by just paying off the the loans that they've spent just to get the job that they have and make and enable that person to build some wealth, build a nest egg so that they're able to retire one day. Yeah. So let's talk about, the political impact of this because Mm. I keep seeing article after article try to say, well, this is a, this is a potentially a lose, lose for Biden because (laughs) if he didn't do it, 
then a bunch of progressives would hate him. But if he did do it, then the general country would hate him. So yeah. here's why that's bullshit. I've, I've even I've even seen people say like even doing this is a lose lose because people who are progressives wanted fifty thousand. So this is yeah. you know this is a lose because they were expecting more. Yeah. To be I don't think anybody was actually expecting fifty thousand, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean Schumer was wanting it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. People were pushing. Progressives for it, but were I don't... wanting it all to be taken. Schumer was calling sure. for fifty and Biden was calling for for ten. But for 10. Yeah. so to that, I would I would say if you are a if you're a progressive who supports either full forgiveness or fifty thousand dollars worth of forgiveness this is not going to make you less likely to vote for Biden. You might, I mean, if you were planning on not voting for him, unless he forgave 50,000 or all student debt, I mean, nothing gained, nothing lost. However, let's look at polling for the general public. So there was, there was a poll done by the data for progress that showed that 60% of Americans of the respondents 60% wanted the federal government to eliminate all or some student loan debt for every Mm -hmm. borrower. All right. For every borrower, this doesn't even do anything for do do things for some borrowers. They're saying Mm -hmm. every borrower. But what I think is even more telling about that is let's look at the partisan breakdown. 81% of, of Democrats are in favor of canceling at least some of student debt. And even 45% of Republicans say the same thing. 45% of Republicans. So here's what that tells you. It tells you that the people that you really need to drum up enthusiasm, Democrats, support this. They like this. See, the biggest problem with midterms is the enthusiasm gap. Now, that mm-hmm. enthusiasm gap has significantly narrowed due to Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. but there's always an enthusiasm gap for the the people who are in the party that uh, that belongs to the president versus the people that are um, that are in the opposition party. There's an enthusiasm gap. In 2018, there were a lot of Republicans that were kind of resting on their laurels. They're like, well, we got Trump in there. Wonderful. But there were a lot of Democrats who were like, fuck Trump. I want to do everything I can to, to, to hurt his agenda, to, to hurt his party. So I'm going to vote. That's why there was such mm-hmm. a high turnout among Democrats in 2018. All yeah. right. Same thing happened, but in reverse during Obama's first midterm. All right. Back in 2010. That's what yeah. often happens. It's happened for so, like the last like, 20 presidents or something. It's pretty something pretty consistent and remarkable. Yeah. So this shows you that even a significant amount of Republicans agree with the same thing. So it's very unlikely that you're going to convince a significant amount of Republicans who are planning on staying home to now come out and vote against Democrats because of this, because mm-hmm. almost half of them agree with you. Yeah. All right. And I would assume... And the other half I, are going to vote against you anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But... A vast, overwhelming majority of Democrats support this, and those are the people that you need to be targeting. On top of that, on top of that, the people that you really need to be drumming up enthusiasm for is going to be the younger people, because their ideology is overwhelmingly closer to the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. They're to the left of the Democratic Party. Those are the people that you want to bring in. In fact, 
a t- in uh, in a in a survey done um in a Harvard University poll a survey of 18 to 29 year olds 85% of them fa- said that they favored some form of government action on student loan debt 85% of them 85% all right that is how you get people to come yeah. out and vote for you all right on top of that there was another data for progress poll that found that 45% of voters would be somewhat or much more likely to vote if Biden canceled $10,000 mm. in student debt. Wow. 45%. That's so interesting. 45% said they'd be more likely. And this was specifically done in battleground states. All right. Arizona, mm. Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. All right. Specifically done in battleground states, 45% of respondents said that they would be somewhat or much more likely to vote if Biden canceled the student debt. So, yeah, there might be some people that disagree with this. There might be some Americans that disagree with this. The Americans that are going to disagree with this, though, are going to be in that 55% of Republicans that were probably going to show up and vote against you anyway. You're probably not going to have more Republicans show up because of this, because almost half of them support it. But you are almost certainly, you are absolutely certainly, based on all of the data, going to have more Democrats Democrats show up, and specifically younger people. You're going to have more younger people show up because they're going to be thankful. They're going to be grateful. All right? Yeah. Just to give you a little bit of an example, a personal anecdote here. All right? So, and I've... I've made this point before, but I'm just going to go ahead and make it again. I don't have any student debt. All right. I don't have any student debt because I was fortunate enough to be born into a family whose parents could afford to send me to college without me having to pay. They paid for my college tuition and I was able to get an assistantship to do, to go to grad school. All right. I was very fortunate and very privileged in order to do that. And then I fell in love with my wife. Long story short, I now have student debt. <laughs> and aren't you mad at people that are getting their student debt forgiven, Nathan? Because you didn't have any. <laughs> well, no, but but here's the thing. We have student debt now, all right, because unfortunately um, she was not able to have that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's no fault of her own. It's just, it's, it's just the income luck. of where she was born. It's just dumb luck. All right. There's nothing special about me that means that I deserve it more. There's nothing bad about her that means she deserves it less. All right. It's just it's just dumb luck of where you were born mm-hmm. and, and what people can afford to do. But here's the thing. We're at a point in our lives where we're hoping to start a family. And because of medical reasons, we actually can't do it in the traditional way. We have to go through IVF treatments, which is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. And this student debt forgiveness is going to make it so much easier for us to have a family, for us to start a family. We desperately have been wanting to start a family, and this makes that easier. This means that when she finishes everything, when she finishes her degree, we'll have either almost no debt or very little debt in terms of student debt, and we will be able to focus on our mortgage, we will be able to focus on trying to save for our child's future. We will be able to focus on actually being able to give our kid the best life they can possibly have. 
And it's because of this. It's because of this if this goes through. And and I could I could not be more grateful for it. I I know that it took a while, and I know that it's not everything that we asked for, but this is huge. This means so much to my family. This means so much to our economic stability. And on top of that, even, this will mean that in future mortgages, we'll both be able to be on the loan. We weren't mm-hmm. able to be on the loan for the house that we bought recently because she had student debt. So I had to be the only one on the loan. In the future, she'll be able to be on the loan, too, if, if her student debt is forgiven. So if this does go through, if this is successful, if this does take, Biden will have become the best president of my lifetime. And on top of that, if this does go through, last time I predicted what the outcome of the House of Representatives was going to be, I said it was lean GOP. I'm moving it to toss-up. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, D-Bag Awards. So Nathan... What is a D-bag award? So a D-bag award is an award that we like to give out to very special individuals who have managed to make an argument that was so stupid and self-defeating that they're just worth bringing out in front of everybody so that everybody can point and laugh. And of course, it's named <laughs> after Alan Dershowitz for that fateful time that he stood up in front of the Congress and he said that a president could not possibly do anything that rises to the level of impeachment, such as cheating on an election, because the president believes that it is in the United States' best interest for him to win. Amazing. Amazing. Gets me every time. Gets, Gets me, me every, every time. time. So who, who, pray tell, on earth could possibly have lived up to the D-bag himself this week? Well, you know, I could not be more excited to give this award to TV shyster Dr. Oz. <laughs> wow. You know, I miss the days when he wouldn't have gotten D-bag award because he would just be on his TV show. Yeah, and because he would just be irrelevant. You know? Yeah, that would have been so nice. But he was like, you know what? You know what this world needs? Me in politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So The Wizard so of to, Oz in politics. <laughs> so there's actually, so that, there's actually two reasons why he's landing on our D-bag list. Because I, I'm wondering if this guy is trying to lose... Because he is getting his ass handed to him by Fetterman in the polls in Pennsylvania. And it's because he is a colossally bad candidate. <laughs> like, he's a monumentally he, well, the is, horrible he's candidate. He's used to being on a TV show where everybody he interacts with is like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And then just like the, their affirmation of whatever the fuck he says, me in the audience is like, oh, well, I guess they're right. He's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, first off, I have a question for you, Michael. How many houses uh, do you questions. own? <laughs> uh, I own zero houses. You own zero houses. Zero mm-hmm. houses. What about you, Nathan? How many houses do I, you own? I, I own one house. I one own house. one house. Okay, that's yeah. good. That's, that's, that's um, good to know. And it's it's pretty easy how to keep long track did you of. Have to, how long did you have to think about that? Yeah, like what did you have to write it down or count I on mean, your fingers? I, 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 or? Yeah, well, I actually, I actually have it on my hand right here. 
you know, gotcha. it's we're, we're doing a, we're doing a recording, so so the people on the pod can't can't see that, but I definitely mm-hmm. have it. Yeah, Written, definitely yeah, have it. One house. <laughs> one one house. <laughs> yeah, but apparently Doctor Oz could not remember how many fucking houses he owned. <laughs> Man, <laughs> so that's he was, unlikable. Yeah, he was. So he was asked uh, by like some reporter, I think. He was asked, um, how many houses do you own? All right. And he responded with, well, I legitimately, which let's pause for a second. Well, I legitimately. (laughs) If you have to qualify something with legitimately. Yeah, exactly. You're fucking shady. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You mean not my secret house in the Caymans and and not my my house that I own under my son's name that I'm currently defaulted on to ruining his credit and and not the house that that, uh, I have for my ex-wife. Okay, so legitimately. (laughs) Yeah, what about illegitimately? Okay. So anyway, he says, (laughs) well, I legitimately own two houses. But one of them I'm building on, the other one I rent. Seems perfectly innocent, besides the legitimately part. Hmm. One problem, though. Yeah. Uh, public record, according to the Daily Beast, shows that he owns 10 properties <laughs> in both the United <laughs> States and in Turkey. 10 fucking wow. properties. See, I was expecting this to be like, maybe he owns three and he said two or something like that. But two and he actually owns 10. That's like really losing yeah. track. Yeah. He has a, uh, a 9,000 square foot mansion and a condo in New, in New Jersey, a, uh, 700, a 7,000 square foot house in Pennsylvania, two condos in, uh, in Manhattan, a beachfront mansion in Palm beach, Florida, a farm in Florida, uh, two, two residential properties in Turkey. And, um, See, see, he and doesn't a, and count student, any of those and, as legit. And a student dorm in ones. Turkey. Yeah, and a student this dorm is in weird. Turkey. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> That's yeah, why, really why do you, fucking Yeah, why weird. do you have a student dorm in Turkey? I, I, why would uh, and you also have his wife has seven, two properties of her own. Why would you have seven houses in the U.S. and then three in Turkey? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's originally from Turkey. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's okay, originally from mind. Turkey. That's legit. Okay, never mind. Yeah. All right, all right. That's less weird. Yeah. But like, and then his his wife owns two houses. Now, I just want to make one thing clear. If a person owned 10 houses and were super wealthy, but they were saying, hey, you should be taxing the fuck out of me. You should be taxing the fuck out of me. And I support this legislation. I support this legislation. I support closing all of these loopholes. And I'm going to do everything I can to fight for that. I'd be like, okay, fine. You know, like I, 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 I would not be as fuck you for being so rich. If you Mm -hmm. were actively trying to fight to make the system more fair for you. All right. Yeah. I would be, I'd be much more, I'd be much more open to that. But the thing is, if you own this many fucking properties and you are actively fighting against any type of reform that would rein some of your monumental wealth in, and on top of that, you fucking lie and or forget how many houses you own, boy, you out of touch. <laughs> but that's only the first thing that he did that we're going to talk about. Another thing he did, he released an ad... 
in which he's he's at a grocery store um and he's trying to talk about inflation so he starts it by saying i'm at wegner's which pause wegner's doesn't exist <laughs> wegner's is not a grocery store what probably happened was he mixed up Wegmans and Regners, mm. but in his attempts to try to be like, look, I'm an everyman. I'm I an shop everyman. in grocery stores. He yeah. couldn't even pronounce the fucking name right. Yeah, he's like, give me, I'm in Wegners. Oh, no, give me some hand sanitizer with the poor touch me. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, one of his defenses, like we'll, we'll get to that, we'll get to another thing in, in, in a bit, but one of his defenses on Newsmax was, I'm exhausted when you're campaigning 18 hours a day. Listen, I've forgotten, I've, I've gotten my kids' names wrong. Dude, Great. what? It's, dude, it's all inflation. <laughs> he started with two houses, inflation turned into 10 houses. He started with three kids, inflation turned into eight kids. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's really the Democrats' fault. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing, Again, this was his attempts to seem relatable. Remember, he was in a grocery store because he was trying to seem relatable. He starts complaining about the price of crudite. Uh, what is crudite? I don't know. That's so funny. <laughs> I don't even know. I think it's like it's like a vegetable spread, I think. It's like oh a, some type of vegetable spread. But he's mm. like pulling out things and he's like, guys. That's $20 for a crudite, and that doesn't even include the tequila. I mean, it's outrageous. <laughs> this is so funny. Have you seen the price of caviar these days? <laughs> Apparently, you all eat something called chips. Let's have one, shall we? Oh, $3. That's actually quite reasonable. <laughs> I mean, that's expensive. <laughs> This was his attempt to seem relatable. I don't even know what crudite is. Like, Me who either. knows what crudite is? Yeah. <laughs> and why are you spending $20 on vegetables, Red Regard? Like, <laughs> just get cheese whiz like a regular person. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is this has been a long D-bag segment, but God. Yeah. He's earned dude, it. Dude, you are hilarious and you are going to get your ass kicked. And you know what? I, I am so happy to see I, I'm I'm looking I'm so much looking forward to seeing what Fetterman does in the Senate because he he actually is a really good candidate. He is mm -hmm. a Bernie Sanders type. Um, and I'm I'm so excited to see what he does in the Senate. And, yeah. you know, as, as much as I as much as I would have much preferred Dr. Oz not be any part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being so bad that you're going to give us Fetterman. <laughs> <laughs> So congratulations to Dr. Oz for being this week's D-Bag. So for our third segment tonight, we are pitting against each other, seemingly, two, you know, ideals of this show. And we're going to see how that shakes out. One, on the one hand, is having a planet that can support life specifically I'm, human life i'm quite you know? fond of that me too i i have i have lived here my whole life yeah call it nostalgia but boy i wish i hope it's still here yeah. later yeah yeah I, sp I spent a few years on mars but for the most part it's, sure I've, you've I've been around on earth yeah. yeah yeah earth yeah yeah me too so having a planet on one hand just like a pretty basic thing and on the other hand um the ideal of like 
at some point reaching a stage in the history of our economy where we can move beyond scarcity right and like so so that, that like the having an earth is a very simple one this one's like a more complex one and more nuanced one so we should probably talk through this a little bit more as we are defining our terms and whatever so this is like the idea that was kind of i think most uh most thoroughly espoused by like Karl Marx in his writings about like economic history and the phases of economic history and stuff like that and this is the idea that you know as you go through the stage of capitalism right and uh, the owners of production uh, own like the means of production and then laborers they labor and eventually get to this place where like there's so much stuff produced but it's all going to you know the capitalists the, the owners of the means of production and but it's so much stuff that it's enough for everybody to take part in and so at some point there's like an overthrow of the capitalist overlords or whatever and we're able to kind of do a great equalizing of things we've got enough for everyone scarcity is no longer truly a problem um because we've reached such efficiency via capitalism um yeah. that we're able to just satisfy everyone's needs and we can reach a stage of socialism yeah and then after that uh communism so yeah little disclaimer i am not a communist i am Same. not a socialist same. Neither is Michael. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there's definitely, there's definitely an interesting conversation to be had about what some of these ideas, the implications of some of these ideas, what they could potentially lead to, and even some of the potential drawbacks of yeah. where they might lead. And the thing about that, the thing about that stage that, that, that transition between capitalism and socialism that always fascinates me is I'm not, I'm not a socialist mainly because like, uh, I'm a little skeptical of like that method for organizing the economy. I am really interested in avoiding the, the overthrow of like full unfettered capitalism via mixed economy, because I don't want yeah. the richest people to own everything, but yeah. I'm really interested in the idea that we could get to a place with our economy where, where want and is substantively eliminated. Yeah. where we reach a stage that like we have enough for everybody yeah. to consume what they need and what they want. But it seems like these two ideals given like the nature of, of limited resources are in contrast, right? Like the idea that we have a warming planet, generally speaking, um, the more we consume of it, the more we consume of the resources, the more energy we produce with like dirty methods, the more activity humans do, like the more it grows, the more it warms, the more it warms, the less natural resources, biodiversity, all the benefits of the world we will actually get. And so you get in this like negative uh, feedback loop where things get worse and worse and worse. So it's, it's as if like this ability to produce everything and the ability to sustain everything are in contrast because like, yeah. and, and that, and they're in contrast because of one key assumption, which is that as I see it, humans are not in the way we behave and we act, all these things are not truly satiable. Hmm. Like we're not like, at least right now, the way that typically we act in the West is that 
more is better always, no matter how much you have. And that means that, that in order to satisfy, in order to eliminate scarcity, you just have to increase output to infinity, yeah. which is just not sustainable. Even if the response is, well, we'll just increase efficiency so that every unit input produces as like as much units output as possible. Eventually we'll get to a place where the units of input are just not enough. And yeah. we'll get to this place where our limited globe is not able to sustain something like totally eliminated uh, scarcity in the face of unlimited, you know, unlimited like consumption. Yeah. So a few things with that. So first off, I would say that that's part of the reason why I don't agree with Marxism. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, the idea behind Marxism is basically that we, it is theoretically possible for us to get to a place where we just, we just kind of stop. Yeah. Like we have an yep. ultimate goal of the, the perfect utopia and we can just stop right there. Yeah. Once we reach it, we know we've reached it and we're done. Yeah. And I just, yeah. that kind of flies in the face of human nature to me. Now that mm -hmm. I, I, again, that might be because of just like how I was raised to view human nature. Sure. But and cultural conditioning and the thing that you've seen around you and all the thousands of people you've ever met. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I just, I just don't think that any ideology that presents the perfect utopia can really be followed seriously, mm. you know? And that's not be, mm. that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving towards some type of utopia. You know, it, it, I mean, it's, 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 think of it like a mathematical asymptote, you know? Yep. It's like you're, the line is getting closer and closer, but it's never going to get there, yeah. all right? So we should strive for that. And I'm not saying that striving for it means a, a socialist revolution or a communist revolution. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But I think that it makes sense to strive for that. But to say that we will get to this point and everything will be taken care of, I just, mm -hmm. I think that takes some hubris, you know? Yeah. But then the other point that I would make to, to your point about continuing consumption, continuing to get more and more, and there being limited resources, especially with regard to climate change, is I would contend the fact that there is a lot of renewable energy hmm. that if it were harnessed in efficient ways and stored in efficient ways, it could kind of bring us to that point where we'll have mm -hmm. almost unlimited energy. I mean, yeah. constantly we have all of this energy from the sun just sprinkling down all over the earth, just coming down and just not being used. Sure. If we could, if we could use that, if we could use that renewable resource, that unlimited resource in order to power everything in a clean way mm -hmm. in order to make sure that cars are running clean, ships are running clean, potentially airplanes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know how practical, I'm not an engineer. I don't know how practical it is to make an airplane that runs on solar energy, but mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, with the shit that science has done in just the last like 30 years, I mean, sure. I assume something like that could be possible at some point. Yeah. Um, and also not to mention, just, just thinking about how much we have progressed, even just in a short amount of time, the fact that, you know, the, the possibility of interstellar travel in the future. Sure. I mean, yeah. potentially 
kind of increasing the basket of what constitutes, um, you know, of what, of what scarcity can, can account for or of what, uh, of what making sure that there is no want in society Mm -hmm. can account for. So, so I'm not sure if we, if it's inevitable that we get to that point, I don't think it's necessarily clear that, that desire for everybody to be provided for and to not mm-hmm. be find, found wanting flies in the face sure. of continued of the continued existence of the planet. I think that the reason why the planet is in such jeopardy is not necessarily like capitalism itself. I mean, it is capitalism, but it's the way that we do capitalism. Mm-hmm. All right. It's the fact that capitalism has become more fascistic than we want it to. Because remember, fascism is about elites being in charge. It's about people with all the money being in charge and oftentimes having the government look out for them, having the government do their bidding. All right? That was actually one of the major things that the Nazi party did in Nazi Germany, which was reprivatizing several businesses that had been previously owned by the states and then handing them over to the um to the people that were you know to to to, to private business owners that was part of how they gained power oftentimes they would also take businesses away from jewish people and hand it to their friends so that they could have more economic power i mean the reason why volkswagen became so popular was because of nazi germany Mm -hmm. a fact that the CEO probably doesn't wants everybody to forget. Um, <laughs> but the point is that type of unregulated capitalism where a significant amount of power and wealth is focused on the top, I think is what it, that's really what has caused this. But I would mm. argue that one of the things that capitalism actually does well, that it actually does right, is that it does allow for the generation of wealth mm-hmm. all right not wealth just in money but also wealth is in resources as in production so if you have a very strong social democracy in which you are squeezing those rich people you know those capitalists for all their worth in order to create public goods you're taxing them a significant amount. So yeah, maybe they are rich. Maybe they do have more than most people, but a significant amount of their income is being redistributed. So you have a true social democracy and a strong social safety net, and you have massive reform in the government to make sure that money is not impacted by it. Then I think that you actually can continue that increase in in resources, in, um, in, uh, in goods Mm -hmm. and that that can account for what humans often strive towards like that, that, that strive that, that for humans to continue to, to try to seek more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really strong argument. I think ultimately like it comes down to, um, increased, efficiency so that more stuff is output for less stuff input so something like something like solar energy is like 
we get something economically valuable out of it for something that's not economically valuable input. That's like a great yeah. trade-off. We're very happy to make that. And that's like in in a sense renewable. It's just a continuous like energy source totally. So like there's that and then and then there's like expansion of our like horizons. There's I think the space thing essentially which is like or like even on earth, you know, like human underwater settlements like in in like a very imagination based kind of thing um and i think i Rapture. think that that makes sense and like i wonder so so the thing that i'm struggling with a little bit is the the limit of all this stuff like and maybe this is just a problem which isn't really a problem like maybe there are by definition problems that will destroy us first but like <clears throat> you know say we get to a point where we require so much solar energy and so much wind energy. And the thing is like solar energy, it doesn't do nothing, right? There's no, no, there's, there's not that there's no impact. It's just, there's so much abundant sunlight that the impact is imperceptible. But like if you make a solar farm, there's no biodiversity there. You're taking the sunlight from animal or like plants that would have used it you are like like you are absorbing that energy and redirecting it which you know you could probably do very efficiently you could probably do very renewably but there is an impact so in an extreme example in a world where we required so much energy that the whole world was covered in solar panels every every part of every part of land was covered in solar panels. Like, obviously that would be something that would, we'd be destroyed by the very solution that we are pursuing. And I'm not saying that like, that's like feasible, but what I'm trying to illustrate is that what I'm trying to illustrate is that like in the limit, as things keep going, like I think we'll get to this place and maybe we'll just run out of space first. Maybe we'll get to this place where we're, we're just not able to, sustain more like well, like no we are not able to sustain more use of water because we just are using all the fresh water we're not able to sustain more production of bottles because we've used all the bottles and like yeah. you have to but and so like you know energy is like one great example but there are so many other problems which threaten which would like threaten to overcome us even sooner or like or like look at like lithium for batteries and like how much just making something that can store the energy that we need in order to be able to like store energy for low wind times or low sunlight times so that we can actually satisfy our want of having consistent energy at this point anyway without a significant technological change in advance requires a significant amount of resources from the earth which are limited and so my thought is like, my, and my kind of thought experiment is, I think your answer about space is a good one. Like maybe in the limit when there are not 7 billion, but 700 billion people, the only answer is actually expansion. Maybe yeah. that's true because efficiency can only take us so far because at some point we get to this place where there's so, even the smallest input is more than we can actually feasibly put into the system. See, but I wonder humans humans yeah, are so adaptive though mm -hmm. that I mean like to to your point about you know we might need so much energy that the whole world's covered in solar panels just just to point out like 
I mean, this this is another example. I, I'm no expert in solar technology sure, whatsoever. Sure, sure. However, like the advancements in microchips, making them sure. smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, fucking the advancement in computers. I mean, we've mm-hmm. you know we've all heard that that fact about how your phone is more powerful than the computer that landed a spaceship on yeah. the moon. Sure. Like we've all heard that, and the like that computer was like a the size of a room. You yeah. know, like we've all heard that. So I think it's it's probably safe to say that there are going to be ways of in which humans will come up with more ingenuitive ways mm-hmm. of storing solar energy, maybe not necessarily using the same resource, but, you know, um, but finding something, fi- finding a different one, finding something more efficient or maximizing what we have. Mm-hmm. Um making solar panels that are smaller but are able to get more energy inside them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I think yeah. that that is incredibly feasible and incredibly possible. And I really, I mean, I know that I, I've had conversations with my dad about this, and I think that I'm pretty sure he disagrees with me, and he's a scientist, so that's probably a good <laughs> indication. But I've also had conversations with scientists who have straight up said, like, if you think about how much progress we've made in just the last 30 years, it is not unreasonable to think that humanity could become an interstellar species. Sure. And yeah. once we open up the cosmos, I mean, there's no limit. Sure. There's no limit to where you can go. Like once we're terraforming planets or traveling to other places or become a multi-planet species, if that ever yeah. does happen, mm-hmm. there's just no limit. Yeah. to to what you can do because the universe is vast the galaxy is vast yeah you know i think i think that's ultimately probably the ultimate answer which is weird to have an opinion in common with like elon musk <laughs> but uh <laughs> go to space I probably have more than one but like but i think that ultimately is probably the answer because like ultimately we wouldn't want just a planet we want a planet that we want to live on because the elimination of want probably means some certain yeah. things about you know the kinds of places that we'd want to be and we'd want to live um so like yeah i think like that probably is ultimately the answer and it's interesting because it's interesting because uh when people argue for socialism their response is like but can't we just be satisfied like can't we just like learn to accept like a certain amount and like be okay with that and be satiated and and all of us like live in harmony. And isn't that easier than like going to space? And maybe the answer is no. And now we will end our episode as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that I am excited to start classes again. Hmm, I, uh, my first classes are tomorrow, which by the time this is published, my first class has been today <laughs> and man, I did not expect that. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. What about you, Michael? What's your, what's your highlight? My highlight is that I was home this past weekend. It was really, really mm-hmm. nice. It was like the first time in like a month that I had just been home for a weekend and Bri and I got to hang out and do stuff. And it was just like actually like a really good way to set myself up for the week, like actually sleeping enough and, being at my house and <laughs> it was like a very, it was a simple pleasure just to like be able to be home nice, so really nice. nice. yeah 
And so now we will thank our incredible patrons for making this show possible. So thank you to Jerry DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen. And with that, dear listener, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again 